Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kayla Branch. And I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, hospital workers are struggling to keep up with the number of COVID-19 patients flooding Metro hospitals. And Oklahoma City police recently shot and killed a 15-year-old robbery suspect, prompting local activists to speak out. is with us to talk about his coverage of hospitals fighting COVID-19. Adam, thanks for joining us. Hey, no problem. So your most recent story took us inside of a local hospital where healthcare workers are becoming increasingly fatigued as the number of COVID patient just, patients just continues to grow. And more Oklahomans are hospitalized with the coronavirus than ever before. So how did hospital workers say these growing numbers are affecting them? Yeah, to, just to give a little context, I talked to a um, number of doctors and nurses just kind of right before the Thanksgiving holiday, which, you know, as a, all healthcare providers were kind of giving a lot of warning of like, hey, stop gathering in big groups. We can kind of knock this uh, surge down a little bit and we can really maybe put a, a dent into what's going on, which is um, hospitals, especially ICU beds and um, areas of intensive care are really being overwhelmed at the moment. In Oklahoma City alone, uh, they've been running at or near capacity in tier three of the surge program, or of the surge protocols for about a month now. Um, So talking with um, doctors and nurses kind of on the ground, you get a much different sense than you do from the state government, which is they are overwhelmed. They are seeing um, uh, I, I talked to one doctor who sees up to 150 tests a day where they just test people all day long, and that's all they're doing. This is a doctor that didn't normally do this kind of work. They were just kind of a family care doctor, and they did, you know, just general practitioner type work. They've been reassigned, basically, to just be testing right now. Um, inside emergency rooms and, and hospitals and intensive care units, um, they're seeing upwards of you know five or six people die from COVID nineteen a day. Um, that's just one hospital. Uh, it's more than that statewide. So um, they they kind of just they described it very bleak. Honestly, that's kind of what we put in the headline, and that was the the, the kind of the the mood that we got from from every um, healthcare worker we talked to is things aren't going well. One thing that I thought was really interesting that kind of contributed to that bleakness that you just described, um, a lot of them were talking about COVID fatigue and you know, that people are saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, I've been sheltering at home for the most part for six months. And so I'm, I'm done. I'm, I need to go out. I'm tired of this. And 
they're they basically they didn't really give any grace there they were like that's just too bad you know like this is this is serious and that makes us really angry to hear yeah i thought that was pretty striking as well um just hearing from um one doctor in particular dr franklin of ou medicine was just telling me about you know you can only hear we're grateful for you so many times before um, that starts to really lose its meaning when you see people out and about without a mask on or see people not social distancing or see people gathering in big groups. Um, this is a collective effort that takes, you know, uh, everyone doing their part in a way. And nurses and doctors here in Oklahoma City specifically um, kind of have stopped feeling the love that was being shared with them really early on when, you know, there were nightly parades for hospital workers and people would come up to the windows to say, thank you for saving my loved one. Or, um, even here in Oklahoma city, when we had the big flyover, um, over mercy hospital and Integris hospital with, um, a, a number of military, uh, aircraft. So they say that like those gestures are great and they made them feel wonderful, but what would make them feel better is if you wore a mask and you stayed home or you, you know, stopped going out to the bars or restaurants and things like that and could help them get this surge of coronavirus cases under control. Um, they talked a lot about uh, different nurses and doctors that I, I spoke with, talked a lot about like, well, there's always contingency plans to add more beds to these hospitals and, and get more and more um, uh, patients in. That doesn't help them increase the number of staff they have. That doesn't add another doctor or another nurse to, to, to patient care. And so the more people you send to the hospital, the worse everybody's care is going to become because they don't have the ability to add more staff and more doctors. Adam, as it stands now, how many Oklahomans are hospitalized with COVID-19 and where does that put us in terms of our state's hospital capacity? Yeah. The last reported numbers we had were um, more than 1,600 uh, across the state. Um, we've been running at a, above 1,500 for about the past month. Um, COVID patients. COVID in patients hospitals. in hospitals. Uh, Oklahoma's hospital capacity is more than 6,000 uh, statewide. And so that, you know, that puts us right in the, the 30% range here in the state. And uh, that puts us at, at the tier three level, which we, we reached um, you know, about a month ago now, I believe. Kind of that, that shuts down a few elective surgeries here and there or actually gives hospitals the ability to shut those down if if they think they're being overwhelmed completely that hasn't yet happened at many of the hospitals um the hospitals so far the only real new protocols they've installed are uh more restrictive visitation hours so gotcha so recently governor kevin stitt said hospitals want to operate at max capacity like any other business would hope for uh, but when healthcare workers discuss what's happening they seem to describe it as an unsustainable situation what can you tell us about the disconnect here and kind of where hospitals draw the line for how many patients they ideally could serve yeah i think that's really interesting i think like I, i'm sure the governor's right like most businesses, the the administration of a hospital probably does want to, um, you know, be busy. <laughs> they want to make some money. Um, I think if you're talking to the hospitals, you know, doctors and staff and support staff, 
that's not the case. They know that this model right now, um, employees are not being granted time off. Doctors are not being granted time off. They cannot call in sick. Um, uh, they are trying their best to, you know, work through this and, and continue to work, but they themselves have said how exhausting this is and how the work itself is, is really getting to them. Um, they've, I know a number of the hospitals have brought in, you know, support staff as far as mental health goes. They brought in, you know, counselors and doctors to, to come in and check in on them to make sure that they're doing okay because uh, compassion fatigue is, is very real. And I talked to one doctor who said compassion fatigue is real at the best of times. You have problems um, with, with nurses and doctors having to care for people at all times. It, it gets exhausting to have to always be the person that someone leans on. Now in a, in a time of COVID when they sometimes don't have time to learn a person's name almost, that's how fast and furious some of these patients are coming in and out of the hospital. It's, it's ramped that up to even an additional level. You also recently wrote about rural patients filling up hospital beds in the state's metro areas. So talk a, about why that is happening and, and walk us through that. Yeah, that was really interesting to me. I, um, you know, talked to a, a number of just local experts, health experts that um, were giving a rundown about uh, where patients are coming from. And uh, here in Oklahoma, the majority of Oklahoma City and Tulsa area hospitals, the two big metros with the most hospitals and the most ICU space, um, are being filled with people from rural areas. And it's pretty simple. It's, it's simple math when you think about it. Rural areas only have so many ICU beds and so many doctors to, to handle this. Um, it is actually pretty common protocol for them to uh, send patients to the big metroplexes to handle cases. Um, that said, though, they're filling up Oklahoma City and Tulsa's uh, ICU beds specifically um, faster and faster. Uh, there was some data shown that areas with mass mandates, specifically Oklahoma City and Tulsa and Norman, um, have sent the least amount of people to the ICU um, and have uh, kind of reduced the number of people needing ICU care uh, to lower levels. Now, they still send people, but it's it's shown that mask mandates have worked in those areas that people are being forced to wear their mask. There's been less spread. So uh, the rural areas uh, so far in the state have really refused to uh, – you know, make a mask mandate. Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, has gone through a, a huge uh, public display of, of, you know, a lot of disinformation that's going on throughout these rural communities. And that's not even that rural of a community. Huge community, in fact, near Tulsa, uh, that is, uh, has its city council trying to debate, you know, the legitimacy of masks, the legitimacy of a vaccine, you know, different things like that coming through. And um, really, a lot of people were quick to correct a lot of that information coming from them, but they still voted not even to give a mask recommendation. It wasn't even a mask mandate they were going for. They wouldn't even recommend people wear a mask. 
an interesting nugget in your st- story, Adam, was uh, that while urban areas like Oklahoma County and Tulsa County have more total cases of COVID-19, the rural areas have higher case yeah. rates. Can you tell us why that is? Um, I, again, it kind of goes back to just community spread. People in rural areas of Oklahoma are not uh, taking the protocols that you know health officials are recommending, whereas people in Oklahoma City either through Oklahoma City uh, City Council, rec- you know, instilling a mass mandate, Norman instilling a mass mandate, Tulsa instilled the mass mandate. Um, uh, through those efforts, it has helped slow the spread some. Uh, in these areas, there's pretty much, um, I've, I've talked to, you know, we've, we've talked before about on this podcast, uh, family members who have had loved ones pass away from COVID, then go out in public in the areas they live and are told like, hey, what are you doing? This isn't real. Like, get over yourself and, and take your mask off. Well, that is, uh, you know, pretty prominent in some of these rural areas in Oklahoma. Right. Well, there is light at the end of this long tunnel that we've all been in. You know, a vaccine is in development for COVID-19, and the state has a, a plan to distribute that, that vaccine out. Uh, where are we in that process, and who gets the vaccine first? Right. Uh, recent reports have uh, sh- heard that, you know, the vaccine here in Oklahoma, the Pfizer vaccine specifically, uh, could be in Oklahoma by the, the sometime middle of this month. Uh the plan to distribute the vaccines is pretty much the same as the one that's nationwide. Get it to healthcare workers first. Get it to frontline workers, people that are you know seeing uh, uh, you know sick patients on the regular. The next would be to the most uh, critically you know uh, vulnerable populations, the elderly, people that are um, have diseases already that make them immunocompromised. Um, so that's kind of stage two of the vaccine. Um, and, and light at the end of the tumble, tunnel is exactly how Governor Stitt described it. The problem for most regular everyday Oklahomans is that this vaccine could still be many months away. Uh, I talked to a couple health experts that say, you know, you might be looking at June or July before, you know, a regular healthy individual here in Oklahoma will, will see the, the vaccine. Um, there's going to be a lot of vaccines offered. Um, at least three very prominent ones uh, could be here in the state and, and maybe more than that. And health experts that I've talked to said, do not wait. Take the first one available to you. Um, a vaccine is better than no vaccine for sure. And all the rates that are coming out are you know high enough at the moment that they all look very positive. So yeah, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I had one health expert kind of lay it out like this, like, hey, you've gone eight months now in a pandemic. You should expect to go eight months more almost before you're going to see this vaccine. So almost a whole nother pandemic length. Now, that's not to like scare people. That is just to outline exactly uh, what you're going to see here in the next few months regarding how long it could possibly take before you get this vaccine. The distribution of it is tricky. Some of them require, you know, uh, advanced refrigeration, which I'm learning is a, is a thing, uh, uh, where, you know, it has to be stored at super, super cold temperatures while others might only require, you know, like a, a deep freeze of some kind. Uh, and then even 
still others don't require uh, kind of any refrigeration at all. So um, still learning all the mechanics of that. Uh, the distribution process is, is interesting for this, and it will take uh, a pretty universal effort from all these different delivery companies to, to kind of get it all uh, on, on target and you know staged out together. Quick follow-up question, Adam. Have you heard one way or another whether people are going to be able to get these vaccines for free or whether we're going to have to pay to get I'm, one? i uh, actually totally not sure on that. That is still, I think, yet to be determined. Okay. Well, Adam, we greatly appreciate your time coming on and telling us what's going on with uh, the vaccine situation and with our hospitals that are fighting this virus. Thanks so much for joining us today. Reporter Josh Delaney has joined us to talk about a police shooting of a 15-year-old boy in South Oklahoma City. Officers shot and killed Stavian Rodriguez at a gas station on November 23rd that he was suspected of robbing. There's an account from the Oklahoma City Police Department of what happened and also a video. Delaney, could you take us through what happened? Yeah, so uh, the clerk at this gas station called 911. The clerk said that they locked uh, this boy in the store, that he was suspected of armed robbery, that he had a weapon, and the clerk got away from the store. Police officers show up, and according to Oklahoma City Police, uh, he is coming out of a window. They order him out, and he starts coming out of a window. Uh, And then when he uh, gets outside, uh, well, the police say that he was disobeying their commands, Uh, But there's video that shows uh, him uh, dropping a weapon. And at this point, this is where the controversy comes in. The police say uh, that Stavian started making, quote, furtive movements. And so they shot and killed him. One of the officers fired a a non-lethal round, uh, but five police officers have been placed on administrative leave. The, uh, the police union is backing the officers. They're saying we have a tough job, uh, but both the union and the city are saying that, um, you know, the investigation is, is, is ongoing. Yeah. And I want to touch in on the, the local police union. Like you said, they defended the officer's actions and I think, you know, it, is it correct to say it's the Oklahoma City FOP, Fraternal Order of Police? Um, and they have been, I think, pretty outspoken lately over the summer in support of um, police and law enforcement. Um, so walk us through a little bit more of you know, what they said and um, if it was surprising that they came out so strongly uh, in support of these officers um, soon after this incident happened. Yeah, oh, oh, they have dealt, and, and other departments in, in Oklahoma uh, have been dealing with harsh criticism from local activists over police shootings here for the last couple of years. So they tend to come out immediately and uh, uh, pretty pretty firmly in support of their of their officers. Of course, this summer we saw a lot of 
police-involved shootings and, and deaths across the country. There was protests everywhere, including here in Oklahoma City. So what tends to happen is local activists will rally. Uh, there was a small rally in this case. Black Lives Matter uh, gets involved, and uh, so, so they so the the police tend to come out quickly uh, against these protests and against these criticisms. There is a councilwoman here in Oklahoma City, uh, uh, Joe Beth uh, Hammond, who has uh, also said some some critical words towards the police, particularly on Twitter. Uh, she says she. Uh, uh, homed in on the word furtive and criticized the police for using this term in this case. And so the union came out and criticized local activists and criticized the councilwoman for their criticism of the police in this case. So uh, it it is typical now that there's a war of words between uh, local activists and the police union when when, uh, events like this occur. And Delaney, one thing that I'm curious about, I don't know if you have viewed the video, um, but what are, what are you seeing? I mean, and what might officers even be referencing when they say things like furtive movements? If the, if the weapon is on the ground, you know, I, I, I'm kind of wanting to understand yeah. more about what they saw there. From what I, from what I saw, it, it appears that he dropped the weapon and then with both of his hands... I'll just say his hands go down uh, or in a downward motion. Uh, Now, whether that means he was reaching for another weapon or not, that's what the investigation will uh, conclude. And and in these cases, there might be charges. Um, But that's that's what I saw in the video. And so critics of the police are saying that this is just an outrageous uh, Uh, shooting and an unnecessary shooting that once he put the weapon down, he was no longer armed. I'm curious, kind of, I think, jumping ahead, you know, several similar incidents have happened in recent years. And you kind of mentioned that, um, you know, and by some rankings, Oklahoma City police shoot and kill city residents at one of the highest rates in the nation. So looking at the big picture here, do we see similarities or differences between these incidents and particularly the one with Stavian Rodriguez most recently? Yeah, in fact, I'm working on a story today about a case out of Tahlequah that involved a man in a garage that had a hammer and he was allegedly drunk and had methamphetamine in him and he refused to obey officers. And so they shot and killed him. And that case is, uh, uh, his estate brought a civil suit, a civil rights suit against the officers. And the uh, Eastern District of Oklahoma judge ruled that the officers have qualified immunity. Uh, This week, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals reversed that decision and remanded it back, uh, saying that a judge could find, could possibly find, that the officers used excessive force. Uh, I'm familiar, when I was 
living and working out in California, there was, uh, there, there were cases like this all the time. Um, in Southern California, there was a case where a man had a hose and the officers thought it was a, a weapon and they shot and killed him. So yeah, they, they tend to, uh, have a, a pattern to them. And typically what police say is that they, they feared for their lives. That's the, the typical explanation that they give. And a follow-up to that, how often is it that a case like this happens, and particularly in Oklahoma or Oklahoma City that you know of, um, where there's a case like this, an officer-involved shooting, or a police officer shoots and kills somebody and gets reprimanded in some way for it or faces prison time or they or the police department changes its policies? I mean, do we see... What do we see happen after these cases are investigated? So there was a case in 2000, well, in 2019, a former Oklahoma City police sergeant was found guilty of, of second degree murder after shooting and killing a um, an unarmed man who was considered uh, suicidal back in 2017. So he got 10 years in prison. This is not... That common, I'm sure there are statistics out there. I don't. I just don't have them uh, at hand right now. But um, typically, charges aren't brought against officers. They come back from paid administrative leave, and uh, they continue on uh, with their careers. And in some cases, they're, they're involved in in other shootings as well. Well, Delaney, um, obviously uh, it's um, an unsettling thing to have to cover. So thank you so much for coming on and joining us and, and telling us about this latest incident. Thanks for joining us this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in the Oklahoman and at oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode. 